Oh, there he is. Okay. Um, okay. Well, uh, thank you everyone for uh, uh, sitting tight and um, welcome. We're really happy to be uh, learning with all of you this evening. Um, this class is on uh, Ludovid or Ludovid, whichever you prefer, um, A Song of Doubt uh, with Professor Benjamin Summer. Um, so just a couple of notes before we start. Um, I have invited everyone to uh, become a panelist. This just means that we'll be able to see your lovely faces and you'll be able to unmute yourself when uh, Professor Summer pauses uh, for questions. Um, and on that note, uh, please remain muted um, when you're not speaking. And uh, if anything comes up in a more uh, lecture portion of the class, uh, feel free to put any questions or comments into the chat, either here or um, on Facebook Live. Uh, and I'll pass them along. Um, another thing is that um, there won't be any screen sharing in this class. Instead, I will send the source sheets to the chat and you can look at them on your own screen. Um, okay, so in this class, we're going to be taking a close look in the English and Hebrew um, at the text recited during Elul and Tishrei, uh, Psalm 27, to see what this text tells us about a a mature Jewish faith. Um, what else? Uh, professor Benjamin Summer is the professor of Bible um, at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Previously, he was the director um, of the Crown Family Center for Jewish Studies at Northwestern University, where he taught from 1994 through 2008. Um, he has been visiting faculty member at the Hebrew University uh, the Sheldon Hartman Institute, the University of Chicago, and Bright Divinity School of Texas Christian University, and a fellow at the Tikva Center for Law and Jewish Civilization at the New York University Law School, the Israel Institute for Advanced Studies, the Yad Hanadiv Foundation, and the American Council of Learned Societies. Um, he frequently teaches rabbinic and lay groups in the United States and Israel. He is the author of The Bodies of God and The World of Ancient Israel and A Prophet Reads Scripture Illusion in Isaiah 40 to 66. He has a PhD in Bible from the University of Chicago, an MA in uh, Near East and Judaic Studies from Brandeis University. And uh, with that, uh, I'll pass it over to you, Professor. To um, thank you, and uh, hello to everybody. It's nice to see uh, some familiar faces and some familiar names, um, and uh, some faces and names uh, that, I, that I don't recognize. It's a, a pleasure and also an honor to be back uh, at Drisha, um, and uh, even virtually, uh, and it's a pleasure to be teaching on Psalm 27, Le David, which um, we Ashkenazim and also Italian Jews recite uh, during this time of year from Rosh Chodesh Elul uh, through, in, in most customs, uh, through uh, Hoshana Rabbah in the typical Ashkenazic custom of saying this morning and evening, uh, one recites this psalm a total of 100 times. Uh, if, you do, if you do the math from the Rosh Chodesh Elul up, and uh, up until Hoshana Rabbah, there actually are variations. I myself uh, am a Yekka. I follow the German custom of reciting this uh, only in the morning. So I recite it 50 times. Um, uh, but uh, it is, especially for, well, Certainly for Ashkenazic Jews, one of the most familiar psalms because we recite it so often for about a month and a half. And actually for Edota Mizrach or Sephardic Jews, it's also a familiar psalm uh, because it's actually recited in most versions of Edota Mizrach custom um, actually all year round. Uh, um, so it's a very familiar psalm, but uh, I think that often with these familiar psalms, we, we get used to saying them fairly quickly. I mean, it shows up usually at the end of a service. Uh, we're in a little bit of a, a rush to, to say the psalm and say the last Kaddish and get on with our day. Um, and also maybe because it's so familiar, um, because many people from reciting it over and over again know it pretty much by heart, it's very easy for us to just sort of recite it and not really pause and pay attention to its meaning. 
So what I'd like to do over the next two sessions is read through this psalm very, very slowly and really pay attention to how this psalm works as a poem, uh, and then to think about how a close reading of this poem helps us to understand what's going on theologically in this poem, what this poem is saying to us um, as Jews, and maybe also especially again for us Ashkenazic and also Italian Jews, what it's saying for us uh, at this particular time of year. So I'm going to divide our time into two parts since we've got two sessions. Um, and I guess we could, we could refer to these two parts as little and big, um, small and large. Um, in our first session tonight, I'd like to go through the poem line by line um, in English and in Hebrew, paying attention to the meaning of the words, the meaning of each poetic line, um, and also the structure of the poetic lines. Um, I think that we'll see that there's a lot going on here that when we kind of, you know, say it very, very quickly in the morning or in the in the evening, we kind of just, you know, we, we just run past all of this. Um, in the next session, then, I'd like to kind of look at the, not just at the lines, but I'd like to put the lines together into stanzas and thus to read the poem as a whole. So you'll notice from what I'm saying about lines and stanzas and the whole that I'm really paying attention to structure in this psalm, um, and I'm paying attention to how we can build on small elements to get to larger elements to get a view of the whole. Um, the big picture is what I'm after here, and as a scholar, as a reader of texts, I'm a very big believer uh, in the idea that the way to get to the big picture is to look at the little things carefully and then to add them all up. Um, so we'll look today, as I said, at the Hebrew and the English text very slowly, and one of the things I want to pay attention to today um, is literary structure on a small level, on a micro level, and by that I mean, I want to pay attention to how the poetic lines of this psalm or of this ancient Hebrew poem are defined. Um, in our next session, we're going to then look at how the, the poem divides into stanzas and what the division of stanzas and the movement thematically from one to the second to the third or to whatever number we end up deciding that there are. Um, how the movement from stanza to stanza helps develop the core ideas of this psalm. But today, I just want to talk about literary structure on a smaller level, on the level of the line. And let me make two say two things about what it means to look at the line of an ancient Hebrew poem. First of all, um, why do we even bother pausing to talk about how to how to divide the poem into lines? Um, the reason I want to do that is that um, um, in English, when we're, when, when we're reading poetry in English, we don't have to bother thinking about how to divide the poem into lines. When we pick up the Oxford Anthology of English Poetry uh, or the Norton Anthology of Modern American Poetry, or we pick up this week's copy, copy of The New Yorker, the printer tells us how to divide the poem into lines. The poet wrote the poem in such a way that the lines were clear, and then the printer stopped at the end of each line and starts a new line at the beginning of the line, which is why in poetry, in English, you know, reading from left to right, the right side of the um, the, the right side of the text is jagged um, because the the, the the lines are of slightly unequal length and therefore unlike prose the way that prose is often uh, printed um, we, we get that jagged edge the, the printer tells us or the poet tells us how to divide the text into lines but in ancient Hebrew poetry that is to say in biblical poetry the printed editions that we have or even the manuscripts from the Middle Ages um, or in, in a few cases the few that we have the ancient manuscripts of the poem don't actually tell us how to um, divide the poem into lines. It is probably the case in antiquity that the, the sofrim, the scribes who copied and chanted these texts out loud, who often memorized these texts and chanted them out loud, um, sometimes as an aid to memory referring to a written copy that, uh, that they might have made themselves or that they inherited, um, the, the scribes, the sofrim, they knew how to perform this, the poem as a poem. 
they knew how to lineate the, po the, 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 um, the poem. They knew when to pause at the end of a line and to take a breath and then to start the new line. And when they chanted it out loud, there was a rhythm to it. Um, and they, they had learned um, from their teachers, from their colleagues, from their um, older family members, since being a scribe was often probably something of, of a family position. Um, they had learned how to, um, um, they had learned how to lineate this, how to chant it with the right rhythm, pausing at the right places to divide the text into lines. But the printed editions that we have, and even, even probably the ancient editions that were written by the scribes, they didn't contain that information, probably because that was just information that the scribes knew from having heard it performed by other scribes and by performing it themselves. They didn't bother physically um, indicating where lines begin and end using ink. And so we usually, there's a couple of exceptions in the Bible, but usually we've got to figure out ourselves where the lines begin and end. Um, and so we'll, I'll, I'll want to talk a little bit about that as we're going through, number one. Number two, let me just say something quickly about biblical poetry and how the poetic line is structured. Um, in in biblical poetry, actually in ancient Near Eastern poetry generally, including the poetry of the Bible, a poetic line usually divides into two or sometimes three parts. I'll call the, the, the two or the three parts of a poetic line a verset. There's different language we could use for this, but I'll use the term verset. So a poetic line is built from two versets or sometimes from three versets. And these versets in one way or another tended to parallel each other. They, they tended to echo each other. They might echo each other in terms of their meaning. It might be the case that there's a word in one verset which corresponds to a similar word, a synonym in the second verset. Um, I exalt you, um, O my God, my King. Um, and I shall, um, I will uh, ble uh, bless your name forever and ever. Aromem, I exalt, corresponds to avaracha. The cha of aromim cha, um, the you corresponds to um, uh, corresponds to shimcha, your name. So that's a case where the parallelism is very, very specific. It's a word for word parallelism. It's kind of A, B, C, and then A prime, B prime, and then there's actually a D, leolam uh, va'ed, forever and ever in the second line, uh, second verset doesn't correspond to anything in the first. Um, but it might also be the case that the second verset echoes the first's meaning in some broad general way, not in a word for word kind of way. It might be that there's no echoing of meaning, but there's some sort of rhythm that is established so that there's a, a parallel between the first verset and the second because they have a similar number of syllables or a similar number of stressed syllables. Typically, um, the first verset might have four words and then the second will have three, or the first might have three and the second also has three, or maybe the second's a little bit uh, shorter and it has two. Um, but you don't find very long versets. You don't get a six word or a seven word verset. Um, you also don't find a big variation in the length. You might go four, three, or three, two, but you don't go five, two, or four one, um, four words and one word. Um, so that's that's what I mean when I, I talk about a biblical poetic line. I mean a line built of these short versets that are parallel to each other in a number of ways. So we're going to pay attention as we go through to how do we divide this up into lines and paying attention to how we divide this up into lines will then help us next week when we start talking about how to divide the poem into stanzas. And dividing the poem into stanzas, I think, will be really crucial for understanding the poetic meaning of the poem, uh, or the theological meaning, I should say, of the poem. Um, Tov, I think uh, that that covers sort of the introductory stuff. I'd like to just start reading line by line, asking a few questions, answering a few questions. Um, what I'm going to do, actually, what I'd like to do first of all, I'd like to just read through the poem slowly once in Hebrew, 
Those of you with really, really good Hebrew, you can follow along in Hebrew, um, either from a, from a Bible or a Siddur, or I would recommend from my handout, since in my handout, I have divided it up the way I printed it out on the PDF into, um, uh, into uh, poetic lines. Um, if you're, you might also be interested, especially for Hebrews, very, very good in following along in the English as I read the Hebrew. Uh, that actually might be a, a good way to do it as well. Um, uh, and uh, I'm going to read sort of slowly to bring the rhythm out. Uh, in order to aid those of you who are following along in the English, I'm also going to quietly say the verse numbers just so that you can be sure that you're keeping up with me, or if you lose the place, you'll be able to keep up with me. Um, so I'll start with the poem itself, which begins with the word Hashem Ori, uh, after the superscription of uh, Lidavid um, of David, whatever that means. Let me just start off with uh, the second word of verse one. Hashem Ori v'yish'i mimi ira. Hashem ma'oz chayai mimi efchad. Verse two. Bikrov alai mireim le'echol et bisari. Sarai ve'oyevayli. Hema kashalu v'nafalu. Verse 3. Im tachane alai machane, lo yira libi. Im takum alai milchama, bizot anivoteach. Verse 4. Achat sha'alti me'et Hashem, ota avakesh. Shivti bevet Hashem, kol yemei chayai. Lachazot benoam Hashem, ulevaker behechalo. Verse 5. Ki itzpeneni besuko biyom ra'a, yastireni besetro oholo, batsur yeromameni. Verse 6. Ve'ata yarum roshi al oyevai sevivotai, ve'ezbecha ve'oholo, zivchei turu'a, ashira ve'azamara ladoshem, lahashem. Verse 7. Shema Hashem koli, Ekra v'choneni v'aneni, verse 8. Lecha amar libi, bakeshu fanai. Et panecha Hashem avakesh, verse 9. Al taster panecha mimeni. Al tat be'af avdecha, ezrati hayita. Al titesheni v'al ta'azveni, Elohei yish'i. Verse 10. Ki aviv imi azavuni, Vahashem Yasfeni. Eleven. Horeni Hashem Darkecha Unecheni Beorech Mishor Lemaan Shorarai. Twelve. Al Titaneni Benefesh Sarai Kikamu vi Ede Sheker Shaker Vifea Hamas. Thirteen. Lulehe Manti Virot Betuv Hashem Beeretz Chaim. Fourteen. Kaveel Hashem. Chazak ve'amet libecha ve'kavei el Hashem. Tov. So I, I hope that that just gave some sense of this poem as a poem. I think, unfortunately, the way that we sort of have a tradition in Judaism of just quickly mumbling through Psalms, we completely lose the poetry. But I hope that I, I just gave you some sense of the rhythm um, of this poem as it's divided into lines and versets. Um, I'd like to now just go through line by line um, reading, translating, and talking a little bit about some things that we might not notice as we're, when we read very quickly. So beginning with that first, uh, that first line, Hashem oriv yish'i mimi ira, um, Hashem is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Hashem ma'oz chayai mimi efchad, Hashem is the sure haven of my life, whom should I dread? Um, these are really very clear cases of, of parallelism um, where we get sort of, uh, uh, actually here we get word-for-word uh, -word parallelism actually between one line and the next line. Um, so ha um, Hashem appears in both lines, then we get some descriptions of Hashem in the first line, Orivishi, my light and my salvation, in the second line, Ma'oz Chayai, the haven for my life. And then in the second verset of both lines, we get the very parallel lines, Mimi Ira, Mimi Efchad, whom should I fear, whom should I dread? Um, 
fairly straightforward. I probably don't want to get too bogged down. So let's just barrel along to verse two. Bikrov alai mireim leeholet bisari, sarai veoyevaili hema kashalu venafalu. When evildoers draw near to slander me, my enemies and foes, they're the ones who stumble and fall. Few comments here. Bikrov alai mireim. That verb bikrov, um, uh, it's uh, bi meaning when, and then the infinitive krov, reminds, does it remind anybody of a particular noun that, 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 that might be sort of drawn out a little bit as we get to verse three? There might, I think there's a little hint here. The word bikrov means when I draw near, from karov to be near. Um, but I think that there, there may be a little bit of a hint at, a, at another word that then gets picked up and becomes more explicit in verse three. Any thoughts on this? What does, what does the noun krav mean? Oh, what's krav? Chaim, I saw, I saw you say something, but... It's fighting. Krav is fighting. Krav is a battle. So it's closeness and also fighting. Yeah, literally means when evildoers draw near when they become close, but there might be a little bit of a hint um, at when evildoers come to do battle against me. That's not really explicit. That's more of what I would call a poetic overtone. But when we get to verse three, which talks about an encampment um, and then explicitly about warfare, that hint, that overtone actually does get confirmed. And here we see something of the poetic nature of this text, that there's a hint, there's an overtone, and that that overtone is deepened as we go a little bit further. bisari, which I translated as to slander me, more literally can mean to devour me, to destroy me. Actually, quite literally, le'echolet bisari means to eat my flesh. And there's really two ways of understanding this. Achal basar, in, in biblical Hebrew resembles a phrase that appear, appears in ancient Aramaic, Kartseachal, and also in ancient Akkadian. Akkadian was the language of Babylonia and, uh, um, and Assyria. Uh, the Akkadian phrase, Kartsi Akalu. Um, the, the, the verb Achal in Aramaic or Akalu in Akkadian, that's just like Achal or Le'echol in Hebrew. Um, and then in Akkadian or in Aramaic, kartse or uh, kartsi um, means flesh. And in those languages, it's quite clear that that is an idiom. That combination of words is an idiom that means to slander somebody. Of course, all languages have idioms that you're not supposed to take literally. When I say it's raining cats and dogs, I don't actually mean that, you know, canine and feline mammals are falling from the sky. I mean, it's raining, it's, there's water falling from the sky really hard. Um, so achal basar in these ancient languages is, is an idiom that maybe we don't need to take literally. It means to slander somebody. So what are these evildoers doing? What, are, what, what makes them my enemies? The fact that they're telling untrue stories about me. They're spreading rumors about me that are damaging to me. That, that's one way of understanding this quite, um, uh, quite readily. That's in fact how I've translated it. On the other hand, I mean, we could understand this literally um, that the word achal or le'echol et bisari means these evildoers are coming to eat my flesh to devour me. I mean, probably they're not actually cannibals. We can understand that metaphorically as meaning they're coming to physically harm me. Uh, they're coming to physically harm me. So there's two possibilities here as we go further in the, in the text. I just would like us to keep those two possibilities in mind, uh, that this could either be... The, this is a text, like many Psalms, about what my enemies are trying to do to me. And we could understand that they're, um, they're spreading rumors about me or that they're trying to harm me physically. They're trying to do physical violence to me. Um, especially in Akkadian, this idiom about slandering can also mean to initiate court proceedings. That is not only to say something untrue about me, but to begin a court case against me, to essentially to sue me um, because of what I've allegedly done. And maybe that's even a possibility here. We can just sort of keep that in mind. Um, two little notes about the, the second verse, the second line here. It's an odd line, actually. Tsarai ve'oyvaili. Um, that is to say, 
my enemies and my foes, they're the ones who stumble and fall. What's odd here is this is a somewhat unusual line of biblical poetry because in biblical poetry, it's usually, not always, but usually the case that we don't get what literary critics call enjambment. Um, enjambment means when a single idea is spread over one over more than one poetic line. It's very, very common in English language poetry that the subject of a verb is is in the subject of a sentence is in one line, and we get to the verb in the second or even the third line. But in ancient Hebrew poetry, enjambment is very, very rare. Um, usually, even a single verset is often a complete thought of its own. But that's not what happens here. Here we get the subject, oivai, my enemies and my foes, in one verset. And then we get the, um, the, the verbs or the predicate, predicate in the second verset, kashaluvanafalu, um, stumble and fall. Um, a more typical biblical line, and those of you let's say, who are very familiar with the Psalms will, might be able to really hear what I mean by this. A more typical biblical line would have been Sarai kashalu ve'oyavaili nafalu. Sarai kashalu ve'oyavai nafalu, or nafalu. Um, but here we get the enemies at the beginning and then we get the verbs later on. And I, I think that that creates a certain effect. A more typical biblical line, Sarai kashalu, we know just in the first verset what's going on. Yeah, I've got foes, but they're stumbling. Yeah, I've got enemies, but they fail, they fall down. Um, here, there's a tiny little bit of suspense. All we know in the first verset is that there are people out there who want to get me. We don't find out that actually they, they, they failed until the second verset. I think that's a little bit interesting. It's, a, it's an unusual way of, of stating something. And I might come back to that unusual way of stating it next week when we're talking about kind of the big picture of the psalm. Um, another tiny little note, to, just in case anyone, since this is a, a Drisha group and it's a, there are those of you who have really strong Hebrew and are familiar with text, I, I quoted this as Hema Kashalu Venafalu, which is how most Sidurim print this. Some of you, if you're following from a Tanakh, um, you might have seen that it says Hema Chashalu Venafalu. Um, I just want to point out that this is a a rare case where different editions of the Masoretic text of the Nusach HaMesorah that you can find in different Bibles in Hebrew have a slight difference. Um, some of them read Chashalu, some of them read Kashalu. There's absolutely no difference in meaning. This is just a minor pronunciation difference. And it has to do with the trope that they use. Um, occasionally different, especially with the Book of Psalms, different Masoretic Bibles might have slight differences in the cantillation and in, in the Tamehamikra and in, in the, um, the trope. Um, some Bibles, um, Bibles that were edited by, Zel, uh, uh, by Zeligman Baer, um, which tend to be followed by Sidurim, put a, a, a trope on Hema that, that indicates there should be a tiny pause. And that's why we get Kashalu grammatically. Um, Better Bible manuscripts, though, put a different trope there that uh, indicates this word joins in with the next word, and that's why it's chashalu. I don't want to go too too much in the grammar and, and cantillation theory here, but just it, it, there's a certain kind of person who just might be curious why different Bibles do different things here or why most Bibles do it one way, but Sidurim do it the other way. They're both correct. These are both found in the Masoretic tradition um, of the Bible. Um, let me just pause here and see uh, before going on to verse 3 questions on what I've said so far, comments, um, anything unclear, anything you want me to kind of go a little further on. Can you hello? Apparently not. Okay, so let's go to verse, uh, I'm sorry, uh, oh, uh, was that a hand? No, apparently not. Um, so verse three. Um, something in oh. the chat though. Oh, something in the um, chat. Yes, uh, could this line be an attempt to give himself courage and confidence, wishful thinking? I think that's a great question. Um, I'd like to return to that when we look at the whole poem, but I, I think that this, especially the first part, is really is a song of confidence. But we might ask, the, but but there's lots of elements throughout this poem of of a lack of confidence. That the dynamic of this poem is a movement between confidence and fear, uh, between trust and doubt, and although it starts off with confidence, 
I think that maybe there are elements of a lack of confidence here, like which might make us wonder, are these statements of confidence, are they really statements of confidence? Or is it an attempt to convince oneself? Is this more of a, a um, is this a bit of a, a, an attempt to, uh, yeah, to, to sort of to do wish, to, uh, to do wishful thinking? Um, I think that's a good question. I don't think we can answer it now as you're reading through a poem slowly. A lot of questions come up at the beginning um, and you can only really answer it by looking later in the poem to see, well, I could answer this question three different ways which of those ways receives support as we go further into the poem? So that's a really important question. Um, we'll we'll want to come back to it today and especially next time as well. Yeah, great question. Tov, uh, verse three. Um, we, we go from at the end of verse, uh, we go to from verse two, which is a little bit negative. It's talking about these people who want to either slander me or do violence to me. We've got we've got this line that introduces the the enemies and the foes, and only only a second later says no, but they actually fail. They stumble and fall. Um, so we go from a, a poem, a, 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 two poetic lines that have some negative elements, um, to a, a poetic line that I, I think moves more definitely towards uh, towards confidence. Im should an army encamp against me, again we've got something iffy here. But then we get um, we get the answer, sort of, or we get the statement of confidence. Lo um, my mind will know no fear. Libi lev, I'm translating here as mind, uh, because in ancient Semitic languages, lev, the heart, is the seat not only of emotion as it is in in, in English, uh, but it's also the heart of thinking. I'm not sorry. It's, the heart is the location of thought and logic. It's it, um, in other words, the lev was very much what really the equivalent of what we would call the mind. Um, it's where emotion happens and it's where thinking happens. Um, that's why I've translated that as mind. So my mind will know no fear. Should war break out around me, I will trust in this. I will trust in this. Bizot, um, in this, actually could be taken in more than one way. Bizot, in biblical Hebrew could be similar to like becholzot in modern Hebrew. In other words, it could mean nevertheless or still. So even if there's a war, nevertheless, I have trust. That makes perfect sense. I think that's the way that New JPS translates this. Um, but bizot also could be understood more literally in biblical Hebrew, well, actually in modern Hebrew too. When you trust something, you say that you trust in something. Aniboteach bo, aniboteach bicha. Um, and so the bit of bizot might be introducing the object of the trust. Um, I trust in this. And then the question is, well, what does the this refer to? Uh, and that's actually not, not terribly clear. One possibility that, that Rashi and Radak, uh, um, the classical commentators Rashi and Radak suggest, is that the zot refers to what we read in the previous verses. The fact that God is my light, my salvation, my haven, um, um, that fact is what I can trust in. That gives, me, that, that gives me reason to trust. Ibn Ezra, on the other hand, another of the medieval trans, uh, commentators, um, pushes this forward and says, I, um, if a war breaks out around me, I trust in the following. And then we'll, we're going to find out what he, what he trusts in when we get to verse four. Those are both possibilities. For reasons I'm not sure of, I somehow think that poetically, um, Ibn Ezra is more convincing that, that I, I, it just sound, it feels to me more like Bizot refers forward, especially because if it refers back to verse one, that's, that's a ways that, that's a, that was a little while ago. Um, but when you say, here's what I, you, you could say, here's what I trust in. And we understand that, that it's the next thing that you say that will explain what the here is. Um, so I, I would go with, personally, I would go with Ibn Ezra on this one, but, but some of you might agree more with Rashi and Radak. Let's go on to verse four. Achat sha'alti me'et Hashem ota avakesh shivti bevet Hashem kol yemei one thing I have asked of Hashem, um, this do I request, to dwell in Hashem's house all the days of my life, to gaze upon the marvel that is Hashem, um, 
or to gaze upon Hashem's pleasantness and to serve in his palace. Um, so what is it that I trust in? I trust somehow in the temple. What I'm asking for God, from God is, let me get to the temple. Let me get to the temple mount. Let me get into the temple complex. And there I'll be able to commune with God. I'll be able to have a vision of God's pleasantness. I'll be able to serve in God's, in God's palace because the temple is God's own personal you know, dwelling place, God's palace. A um, couple of notes here. What does it mean to, to look upon the pleasantness of Hashem? Actually, in ancient Near Eastern religions, it was often the case that people talked about seeing the God. Um, and to, to go to the temple was to try to see the God. In fact, in, in a lot of ancient Mesopotamian, uh, Babylonian and Sumerian and, and Assyrian temples, there were these little statues that people would donate to the temple that had these enormous eyes. Um, and the idea seems to be that the statues represent the person and these eyes are with great fascination and devotion and love gazing upon the God. But they didn't literally gaze upon the God. Normal lay people never got anywhere near where the statue or the idol or the icon of the God was. So in ancient texts, although there is this idea of seeing the God, it didn't mean literally seeing the God, even in the case of, let's say, the Babylonians, where there actually was something to see. There wasn't an idol, a statue in the Holy of Holies, but regular worshipers never got anywhere near that. So I, even in the ancient Near East, this is metaphorical language called the Homer, I think, in Hebrew. Um, this doesn't literally this doesn't necessarily mean to have some visionary experience in the temple. It can just be a, a metaphor for saying to bask in the radiance of God's presence to be delighted and fascinated by the presence of God. Um, you'll notice I translated ulevaker behechalo as to serve in his palace. Why do I translate levaker um, as to serve? Most of you might've translated this as what, or even new JPS and other translations translate this how, levaker behechalo. Um, what do you generally tend to think that this means? To visit? To visit. And that's what Luvaker means in modern Hebrew. I visited Israel um, uh, this past summer. Um, that's what Luvaker means in modern Hebrew. Um, and quite unusually, the new JPS translation, I think, erroneously put in the modern Hebrew meaning um, instead of the ancient meaning. But in biblical Hebrew, Luvaker didn't exactly mean to visit. Luvaker Livaker meant to be responsible to carry out a, an important task. In Sefer Vayikra, for example, one of the things that a Kohen does is he is mivaker between the pure and the impure, or he's mivaker um, a person's skin to see whether the person officially has tsara'at, which has all sorts of ritual consequences, or doesn't have tsara'at, which is usually translated as, it's a skin affliction of some kind, translated as leprosy, but it's not what we mean today by leprosy. Um, so levaker is to have specialized knowledge that you apply to some particular issue. Levaker can also mean to be in charge of. Um, and there are cases in the Bible where levaker means to be in, in charge of. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the head of the Dead Sea Scroll community uh, is sometimes referred to as the mivaker. That doesn't mean that he came occasionally to visit the community. No, that, that means that he was the person who served, as, uh, who served the community by leading the community. Um, now, one way to serve a person in the ancient world would be to do bikor cholim, levaker cholim. We think of levaker, bikor cholim as visiting the sick, right? Visiting the sick, stopping in to cheer up a person who's ill. In the ancient world, levaker cholim meant to serve a person who's sick, to take care of them. Um, in the ancient world, there weren't hospitals. Uh, when you were very ill, you didn't go to a hospital where the nursing staff um, and other hospital staff members cared for you. Now, if you were ill, you would hope that friends or neighbors or members of your family would be mivaker cholim. And what that meant was not just that they that they stop by to chat with you and cheer you up. That meant that they made sure that you were eating. They, they put food in your mouth. They held up a cup to your mouth so that you could get some fluids. 
Um, they put a salve on your sores. Uh, maybe they prepared herbs for you that were healing. Um, but Bikur Cholim in the ancient world, it was a lot more extensive than it is in the modern world because it meant doing what doctors and nurses do nowadays in a world that didn't have hospitals. I think later the, the idea develops that means stopping in to see somebody in modern Hebrew that develops into to visit. But this person, I don't think this person's talking about, I want to visit the temple. I think this person is saying, well, as the previous line says, Shivti Hashem, I want to live at the temple. I want to get a job there. I want to be in charge of something there so that I can serve God and in a way serve the community on an ongoing regular basis. And that, that, that makes a big difference. The, the person is not talking here about stopping in at the temple. The person I think is talking about actually going and spending the rest of his life at the temple and being of service there. Um, which maybe gives a different spin to what this psalm is talking about. Questions on that before I go on to verse five? Okay, hello? Questions? I see Joel doing something, but I'm not sure whether this is that you're asking a question or you're just adjusting your computer. Can you the latter? Um, okay, uh, so let me go on. Um, to verse, uh, if, if oh, I yes. can, yeah, is okay. I, I unmuted. I uh, was ah, great. The chat, writing in the chat. Gotcha. Um, Hi, Joel. Nice to see you. So, um, how could how could anybody say that they wanted to get a job at the temple? I mean, you've got Kohanim and Levim, the work at the temple. What would be the one other case of a person who's not a Kohen or a Levi who ends up going to dwell at the temple? And he's going to dwell at the temple. He probably should get a job there. If he can't leave it, what would be the one other case? Why would a non like a non kohen a non levi would visit the temple on pilgrimage? Would make hajj on a chag, um, would do pilgrimage once in a while, and maybe there's a family custom of going at a certain time of year, um, or for other reasons, a person might come to do a, a sacrifice. But but that's different. I'm, that that is a matter of just stopping in once in a rare while. What's the one other case of a non kohen or a non levi in the Bible? who needs to go to the temple uh, and needs to stay there for a long time, probably until the death of the current high priest. Uh, so, somebody who's impure? No, somebody who's impure oh. is not allowed to go into the temple. Uh, not to go into, I meant to say uh, uh, seeking refuge. Somebody who's seeking refuge, and why is he seeking refuge? Because he did something wrong, maybe even killed somebody. Specifically because he killed somebody. In, in the Torah, we've got laws saying that if you kill somebody by accident, you didn't murder the person. This is what we would call manslaughter. Right. The family of that person has the right to kill you. Um, they can de demand blood for blood, life for life. But if you're not actually guilty, you didn't mean to do this, um, you can be protected by going to the temple. If you make it to the temple, once you're in the temple, they can't get you. They could with impunity seize you and kill you before you get there. But once you're in the temple, you can seek, you can gain refuge. Now, they might then claim about you, no, he did it on purpose. Send him on out there. We're going to kill him. And there would be a trial. And if the finding of the trial was that you did it on purpose, then you could not seek refuge and you would be, you would be kicked out of the temple to the fate that awaits you. Um, but but you're, you might claim, no, no, that's, that's not true. That's slander. Uh, I didn't do it on purpose. They're making up a story about me. The, the, the axe handle fell off by accident uh, and it hit him. I didn't want it to hit him. I didn't want it, this to happen. Um, in that case, if that's really what happened and that's what the, the court finds, you can stay in the temple um, and you'll be protected there. But if you're going to stay in the temple, you're probably going to end up being employed there. Uh, what's the name of the guy who's like in what is it in a, a Swedish embassy somewhere in London or something? Because America wants to arrest him. Oh, Who am I thinking of here? You're thinking of them. Um, I'm blanking on this. Or you, it's got to be somebody who's not blanking on the name. Assange, like the right? Yeah. Guy uh, yeah. The WikiLeaks guy. Yeah. Jonathan Silverman put it into the chat. Um, you know, like I suppose the people in the embassy, you know, they might prefer, like, instead of just taking up space, like, could you do something? Like, you know, grab a mop. You know, grab us, you know, or Xerox rooms in there. You're good at Xeroxing, apparently. Um, you go and go and you'll be in charge of Xeroxing here. That may be what this person's asking for. Um, I'd like to get to the temple and dwell there for the rest of my life. And I'll, I'm not just going to lie around there, you know, kind of, um, you know, 
eating, eating your food. No, no, I'll have a job there. Um, I'll be safe and I'll be protected by God um, and I'll, I'll serve God there. I'll do something. He wouldn't be able to be a priest, but he probably would be able to do some of what we consider the Levitical work. Like within the temple, Levites have certain things that only they can do. Um, but there probably were Le Levites in the temple had menial tasks. They were sacred menial tasks. It was an honor to have them, but they were still menial tasks. And we, we do know of other non-Levites who occasionally are in temples and end up doing menial work in the temple. And, and sometimes even their descendants continue doing this. It becomes a prestigious job, even if it wasn't originally. I think that that's what this person is asking for. And And why might he be asking for this? Going back to verse verses one and two, um, what's going on possibly that's causing him to want to go and get refuge in the temple? Thinking back to the idiom in verse two, bisari might mean they're slandering me. What's the slander that they're saying? He's under attack, but specifically, what are the slanderers probably saying about him? And maybe maybe should be understood both ways. Maybe they're slandering me in such a way that they're preparing to do physical violence to me, even to kill me. What would that what, what would that slander be? Um, Madeline or Madeline, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Sorry, but um, put in the chat, the family of the dead person um, would be accusing him the yeah. of intentional murder. Yeah, the slander is that they're saying he intentionally murdered somebody when in fact it was an accident. But they're slandering me, him ochlin met bisari, by saying I'm a murderer so that they can then ochlin met bisari, so that they can then harm me physically so they can put me to death. Um, but if I can make it to the temple, then the temple will be ma'oz chayai, it will be a refuge from me and God will take care of me. Um, and maybe God will be on my side in the trial and God will make sure that the truth comes out at the trial and the judges understand that, no, no, it was an accident. I never meant for this to happen. And then I'm not going to die. I'll be able to stay in the temple. That's one possible way of, of reading the Psalm. I don't think we have to read it th this way, but I do think it's within the realm of the possible that this Psalm was, was used in the temple sometimes to express the feelings of people who were seeking refuge in the temple. Not the, not the only use of the psalm in the ancient world, but maybe this is one of the uses of the psalm in the ancient world. Um, yeah. Is it possible that this is also um, an internal sense of having done something wrong and done something? It's oivai li. You don't need the li. It's, you know, it's it's uh, could it be referring to a, an internal process of feeling that you have wronged someone and you need uh, refuge? Yeah, it's a great that's a great suggestion. I, I think that for sure that can be possible. I mean, if I'm right and other you know, biblical scholars going back to 110 years ago when when the first article in this was written, um, if we're right that this is in part the song of somebody who's seeking refuge in the temple because people outside the temple, people out there in his village are slandering him and accusing him of something that could be deeply damaging. If that's the case, um, then if that's literally the case, once it's literally the case, I think that other people could start using this psalm in a more metaphorical way. So maybe the, maybe the slander is somehow maybe even internal. Um, maybe I'm having my own conflict and I'm accusing myself of something and I'm asking God to help me get out of my guilt. Um, I've done something, I feel guilty about it um, and I want God to save me by letting me know that I'm forgiven um, or letting me know that, no, you're not right. What you're saying about yourself isn't true. Um, and that I think that's a really interesting reading of that the Tsarai and Oivai might be internal might be internal and that this this poem is about a person whose mind is divided whose soul is broken up um, and is a bit at war with itself I, I I certainly think that once we've got the literal meaning uh, that already in the ancient world 
the text could also have functioned metaphorically and other like even if this psalm was written specifically for a refugee a person who's seeking refuge in the temple or it was written by a person seeking refuge in the temple once it's there other people can start picking it up and using it taking it in new directions that are i think linguistically plausible um i'm not it's interesting what you're su suggesting about the lee there that's that's maybe um it, the lee is not necessary grammatically but in poetic Hebrew, it is sometimes the case um, that we we have a a pronoun that's attached to a word, and then we repeat it with a preposition. Sarai ve'oivai li. The 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 yud of sarai ve'oivai already has the preposition, you know, mine. Li just adds the preposition. But in poetry, that's not so unusual in biblical poetry. Actually, in rabbinic Hebrew, that becomes fairly standard altogether. Amru lo l'rabi akiva. For example, um, they said to him, to Rabbi Akiva, in biblical Hebrew, that's less common. It's not common. It doesn't happen in prose, but it does happen in poetry. It's just this kind of extra little feature in, uh, of poetic language. So that, even without that, I, I think, though, that your, your, your suggestion is a very strong suggestion, Chaim. Yeah. Tov, we'll move on a little further. Um, where were we? Five. Ki yitzpeneni besuko biyom ra'a. Yastireni beseter oholo, vatsur iromameni. For he conceals me inviolable in his shelter at times of danger. He hides me in his hidden tent. High on a rock, he lifts me up. Um, why did I translate Yitzpineni besuko as he conceals me inviolable? In other words, I, I actually translated the verb Yitzpineni twice. Because I think yitzpaneni as a verb is punning. Litzpon mashahu, the verb tzafan means to hide something. We're used to this from the Passover Seder. The afikomen, um, that part of the Seder, seder in the, you know, the kadesh karpaz yachatz, that part is known as tzafun, the thing that is hidden. The thing that is hidden is the afikomen. Um, that's the passive form, that what is hidden. Here we're getting the active form, he hides me, yitzpaneni. But that the shoresh, tzadi pe nun, uh, reminds us also of the noun tzafon. Tzafon, of course, means north. Um, in ancient Canaanite poetry, in what's actually more specifically known as ancient Ugaritic poetry, these poetic texts that were discovered um, on the coast of Syria, just south of the Turkish border uh, in the late 1920s at a place called Ugarit. Uh, in the, the, the poetic and mythological pagan texts from Ugarit from about the 14th and 13th centuries BCE, the name of the mountain where the gods and goddesses live is Safon, the mountain of the north. In other words, in Canaanite mythology, Safon is, is, is like Olympus for the Greeks. Um, and actually, often in the Bible, not often, a few times in the Bible, for example, in the book of Job and elsewhere in the book of Psalms, the mountain where God lives is referred to as Tzaphon. In other words, that, that Canaanite um, idea that Tzaphon is where God lives, it actually shows up in the Bible. And in fact, in a few places, in particular in Psalm 48, the Psalm for Monday, the, the city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem is referred to as Tzaphon. You might wonder every Monday as you're reading Psalm 48, the Psalm for Monday, why is Jerusalem called Safon here? Jerusalem's like right in the middle of the land of Israel. Actually, it's kind of a little bit south if you look at a map, if anything. The reason it's called Safon is because God lives in the temple, and therefore the temple is what we would call in our culture Olympus, but they would call in ancient Canaanite-speaking uh, culture what they would call Safon, and Hebrew is really a dialect of the Canaanite language. And so given that Safon means where God lives, Yitzpaneni could be an allusion to the idea of the temple, and all these lines are talking about the temple anyway. Um, in Psalm 48, when the idea of the temple of Jerusalem as Saphon or the temple as Saphon comes up, it's in a context where the, the psalm is laying out an idea found elsewhere in the book of Psalms, found in the book of Isaiah, found in a few other places uh, in the Bible, that, well, the temple and the temple city can never be destroyed or conquered by a foreign enemy. God lives there, and consequently, it is inviolable. No foreign enemy can ever take it. This was a widespread idea in ancient Israel. As I say, it shows up in a few places in Psalms, uh, as well as the book of Isaiah. It shows up in Jeremiah 
chapter seven, Jeremiah ridicules the idea, he disagrees with it. And obviously in the month of Av in the year 586 BCE, the Israelites found out that Jeremiah was right and Isaiah was wrong. Uh, Jerusalem was not in fact inviolable, um, but it was a widespread idea. And I think that this no doubt pre-exilic Psalm may be alluding to this idea. Yitzpaneni means he hides me in his, in his um, sukkah, so to speak, that is to say in, in, in the temple. Um, and by hiding me there, he makes me inviolable. They can't touch me. My enemies are out there, but there are these Levitical bouncers at the gates. Uh, they're not going to let them in. I'm safe. I'm safe in here. If he lets me get to the temple and if he helps me out in the case, in the court case, I'll be inviolable, hidden from my pursuers inside of the temple. So Yitzpaneni is kind of a clever line here. Um, Yastireni, he hides me in the, the hidden place of his tent. Um, Seter here, uh, the, 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 the Shoresh, the root Samach Tav Resh, is repeated, shows up twice, and it's a figure of safeness. Um, they can't get me. Um, I'm secret from them. They, they can't get to where I am. Um, Tov, actually, we're, let's see, we're supposed to go until nine. We're, we're a little bit, we're, we're about at the ending time. Uh, who's in charge here? I can't remember. Uh, where, where are you? Uh, should I go for another five minutes? Should we just stop here? Um, um, Noah, would you like to weigh in? Feel free to continue. Um, we'll set 9.15 as a hard stop, including questions. Okay, if, if that's okay with people. Yeah, we started a little bit late, so why don't I just go a little bit further? I had a little trouble with Zoom at the very, very beginning there. Sorry about that. Um, okay, so let's go on to verse 6. Ve'ata yarum roshi al So now I hold my head high above my enemies all around. He's made it. He's going to be safe. Ve'ezbecha ve'oholo zivchei teru'ah um, I should offer up in his tent a celebration meal. I should sing and play music to Hashem. Um, the, the verbs here, for uh, those, of you, those of you with really strong Hebrew, you'll notice it's not the Ezbach, um, it's not Ashir Azamer, it's the long form of the verb, Ezbecha, not Ezbach, Ashira, not Ashir, Azamera, not azamer, and that form of the verb in biblical Hebrew is known as the cohortative. Uh, it's a verbal form that doesn't exist in post-exilic Hebrew. We don't get it in Mishnaic Hebrew, medieval Hebrew, or modern Hebrew uh, with this meaning. Um, it, it, uh, the meaning of the cohortative is it's a statement not of a fact, but of a desire. And that's, um, it, it's, it's the way of saying, let's, let's do this, or I should do this, or let me do this. And that's why I've translated this as um, I should offer up in his tent a celebration meal. This is, it's not a statement of fact. He's, it's still a statement of hope. Uh, this is what he intends to do, what he would like to do. Um, but still, it's a, overall, the, 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 the tone here is a tone of great confidence. Um, he's going to do this, um, and therefore I should um, sacrifice to him uh, and sing to him. We'll just go a little further. I don't think we'll get through the whole poem today, but we'll get... Get through most of it, I hope. Shema Adoni Koli, Ekra Vichoneni Vaaneni. Listen to my voice, Hashem. I call out, have grace upon me and answer me. Actually, I was just looking at the Hebrew. I should have, I should have read my own translation. Hear my voice, O Hashem. I'm calling. Treat me with great grace. Answer me. A very, very strong change of tone from the confidence of these last several lines. Now suddenly he's actually calling out for help. Uh, he, he, he doesn't seem to be confident anymore. All of a sudden, um, he's, he's in crisis. Um, the, I, I, um, in terms of the poetic line here, let me mention something else. I have divided up the poem here, the, the, the line, into two versets. Shema Hashem Koli, Ekra V'choneni V'aneni. Each of the, uh, the, the versets has three words. Um, it's also possible, to, however, to divide this up differently. And in fact, if you look at the trope, at the ta'amim, the cantillation, the trope divided up differently than I did. And it's a, the, the trope divided up in a perfectly plausible way as a three-part line. They would read it, I think, as Shema Hashem, Koli Ekra, V'chonini V'aneni. 
instead of being two versets that are three words long, there's three versets that are two words long. And then you would translate it as, listen, Hashem, I'm calling with my voice. Treat me with grace and answer me. Linguistically, both are perfectly plausible. Um, so does this line has three versets or two versets? The truth is you could do it either way. The Psalms, uh, the Psalms were performed texts. Um, you could, um, you, you would, these were performed. They were sung out loud, typically by Levites in the ancient world. Um, and therefore it may be that some people performed it the one way and other people performed it the other way. Um, that's, that's really not at all unusual in, um, in performed texts that there's more than one way of doing it. Um, yeah, an example that I like to give of this, let's say, how do you, how do you stress, how do you perform this land is my land? Woody Guthrie, who, who wrote the song and performed it, you can go to YouTube and see how he performed, listen to how he performed it. He would say, this land was made for you and me. It's eight syllables long. And technically, poetically, this is what's called um, a, an iambic tetrameter with an inverted initial foot. It's bum, 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 bum. This land was made for you and me. It's a type of line that exists in English poetry. That's how he performed it, but it's not the only way to perform it. Bruce Springsteen performs that as this land was made for you and me. He does it as nine syllables and it doesn't have a meter. He does it, Springsteen does it as free verse. It's got a rhythm, but it doesn't have a meter and it's got a different number of syllables because he, he makes the word and into two syllables, one of which is he, he, he puts the stress on. Um, it's not that Springsteen was doing it wrong and Woody Guthrie who wrote the song was doing it right. It's not that Guthrie was doing it not such a good way and it took another performer to really bring out the way it really should have been done. Performed text can be done in two different ways and there's no right and wrong. Um, I'm forgetting which one it was. There's a, there's a Dylan song in 4-4 that he sometimes performs somehow. I don't even understand musically how this is possible, but that's why he's a musician and I'm not. Uh, he sometimes performs it in 3-4. He sometimes does it as a really quick waltz. Um, there's more than one way to perform a song. And so the question here of whether this is two or three versets, I think both possibilities um, both possibilities exist and are perfectly legitimate. Next time, when we start talking about stanzas, we'll come back to this question of whether this is two or three. It's going to end up making a little bit of a difference, I think. Um, but, but this is a nice example of how it's good to remember that I've I've spoken of the Psalms as being poems. I really want to stress the idea that these are poems and we should read them as poetry, but they're not poetry that you find in the New Yorker. It's not poetry that you find in a, you know, in a volume of Keats's or, or, um, or Shelley's poetry. These are poems that were performed by Levites in various temples in the pre-exilic period in ancient Israel. And it's quite possible that some Levites sang it this way and other Levites sang it that way. Um, it's quite possible that in the Jerusalem temple, they sang it one way, but in the Arad temple, the same text was performed with the same words, but performed in terms of the rhythm and the music in a slightly different way. Um, we'll do just one more line, uh, to actually two, two more lines. Lecha amar libi bakeshu fanai. This is a hard verse to translate. Um, but I think that lecha, I'm following Rashi here, lecha means on your behalf. So my, my own mind, oh, actually, how do I translate this? I should, uh, oh, I should read from what I've got, what I sent you guys. On your behalf, my mind speaks, seek me out. Um, so my mind is speaking on God's behalf. My mind is telling me something on God's behalf and that's seek me out, bakeshu fanai. The imperative verb here in Hebrew is plural. And I think we might wonder, uh, and this might come back maybe to something that Chaim suggested earlier, why is it plural? If God is speaking to me specifically, or my heart is speaking to myself on God's behalf, why is it addressing me, or why is God addressing me in, in the plural? Um, bakeshu, why isn't it bakesh panai? Um, we're not going to get around to talking about that today, but I think it's just good to think about as you're going through this text, um, you know, 
14 times in the next uh, in the next week. Why is it in the plural? I think Chaim already hinted at one possible answer. Maybe there are other answers. Um, why am I being why am I being addressed in the plural? Um, and then the person responds, et panecha Hashem avakesh, al taster panecha mimeni. Um, it is your, it is you, or it is your presence or your face that I seek Hashem. Don't hide yourself from me. Um, you'll notice that I translate this as it is you that I seek, or it is your face that I seek. I do that because the Hebrew is putting the word, the object first, et panecha. Normally in a Hebrew clause, it's more typical that the verb comes first. It's atypical that the object of the verb comes first. If the object of the verb is coming first, it's probably in order to emphasize the object. And that's why I translate this not just as I seek your presence or I seek you or I seek your face, but it is your it is your it is your face that I that I seek out um, to put that uh, so that we get also in English um, some emphasis on the fact that it, what I'm seeking out is your presence. Don't thrust your servant away in anger. Uh, in in anger, um, you were my help. Um, we could probably translate "hayita." You are my help, or you were my help. Either one would 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 be legit. Don't leave me. Don't abandon me. O God of my salvation. Um, okay, we've got just four more lines to go through. Uh, I think we'll do those next week. Uh, I've kept us over a little bit, uh, well, enough time already. We've got just a couple minutes left. Let me just see if there are any questions before we break, um, uh, before we break uh, and until next week. Um, apparently not. Okay, wonderful. Um, so next time, we'll just do those last four lines. If you want to think a little bit about next week. We're going to start, once we go through those last four lines, then we're going to talk about how many stanzas are there in this poem? How do you know? what? On the basis of what did you come to that conclusion? And then if we could give a title to each stanza, what would the title be? Um, once we can say that, then we can begin to see what's the dynamic of the of, of the poem. Where does the poem head? So if you have some time over the week, you don't have to do this. Um, uh, but if you have time and you want to think about this, ask yourself, number one, how many stanzas, where do they begin and end? Also, two, how do I know that? What leads me to think that this is the beginning and end of a stanza? If you only have one piece of evidence, that's not enough. You should have a few pieces of evidence uh, on behalf of your way of dividing it. And then think about, try to decide what would what would be the title if you were to give each stanza a title? Because once you've done that, then we're well on the way to coming up with a reading. But once you've given a stanza, a, a title to each stanza, we're well on the way to giving, to present, pro, uh, producing a, a reading, a holistic reading of this entire poem. Tov, um, I'm looking forward to seeing everyone next week and Lihitraot. Uh, Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, Madeline uh, put something else in the chat. Um, what should we imagine is happening? Why is God angry? And I think that might be something for us to chew on and uh, address next week. Yeah, great. Wonderful. Um, yeah. Um, thanks. Um, thank you thanks. so much. Tov, so See you next week. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank Bye. you everyone for being part of our learning community. Um, and also just as uh, people are making their way out, um, I've if you can't get enough of prayer study tomorrow at 11.30 Eastern, Dr. Hanan Gafni um, is going to be giving a class searching out the four fathers and four mothers in prayer and pute. Uh, you know, we have over a dozen classes this LL's month, so uh, you can learn more and register at lol.drusha.org. Thank you so much and Great. see you next week. So darva, and thanks Maxine and Noah. Bye-bye. <laughs>